Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Thursday this week, a little after 10 a.m. on November 2nd. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hey, everyone. Stephanie Armour of The Wall Street Journal. Hello. And Paige Winfield Cunningham of The Washington Post. Good morning. So, open enrollment opened yesterday. How many people actually thought there would be an open enrollment this year? So, despite Republicans' best efforts, the Affordable Care Act still exists. People are, however, confused, and they have a right to be. So, what do we know about how things are going one whole day in? Stephanie? Well, we talked to navigators yesterday throughout most most of the day, and what they were saying was that they were seeing some interest. It, it did seem to be a fairly quiet day. There were not major problems with the healthcare.gov website. Um, there were some issues with um, a feature that allows you to look at premium costs. And the other thing I heard, I, I did get uh, some interesting um, emails from consumers, um, some who were sort of surprised at the prices they were seeing, uh, both um, lower than they expected for many and some higher, which is largely what we've anticipated. This this open enrollment is probably the biggest divergence between individuals who are seeing real drops who get subsidies and those who are not who are seeing real increases. And start of some of that is starting to hit home as people look. I think it was it was a, it was one of your colleagues, right, who wrote the lead that this is this is both the, the, the best and the worst open enrollment <laughs> ever since the law has been in effect. Right. It all depends on who you are. But we are seeing some activity. You're not seeing a whole lot from the Trump administration promoting this, um, which is quite striking compared to other years. Yeah, I thought it was really telling that you didn't see any of the top officials from HHS. You didn't see Seema Verma come out and talk about the law, which was a huge contrast from what you saw the last couple of years. And I think it'll be really interesting to see what the final numbers are. I mean, I think you can't over uh, overestimate the effect of TV and radio advertising and, and the effect of those in driving people to enrollment over the last couple of years. And since the administration has really pulled back on that, I think that could really, really affect things. Well, you did see t- uh, two things. One, Barack Obama did release a video yesterday. Um, and I'd actually been told he wasn't going to do that, but then somebody changed their mind. Uh, and the other thing is one of uh, Eric Harkin, who's the acting uh, HHS secretary, was at a conference yesterday and was asked flat out, are you going to go out and <laughs> promote this in any way with your colleagues? And he basically said, I I'm paraphrasing, and it was it was something. I mean, the short paraphrase is, you know, it sucks. The <laughs> the longer words were something like, you know, how can we promote something that has such awful rules that makes you do these things you don't want to do in healthcare or something? I mean, that wasn't a great paraphrase, but it was a very, very negative message rather than, yeah, I'm going to go sell this thing. And yet, weirdly, if you go to the healthcare.gov website, which I've been doing for you know the last week and went in yesterday, and it it's it seems to be it, it seems to be having its usual sort of first couple of days problems. It mostly works, but then sometimes it doesn't. Um, but somebody did point out yesterday that it works better than the Washington Metro, my colleague, Adriel, yes. as he was stuck again. That I, is I not agree. hard. I just, healthcare it's a low bar. Yeah. <laughs> healthcare.gov has not struck a deer and made you late for work. <laughs> That's true. And, and yes, and this morning at Metro Center, the down escalator was on and the up escalator was off. And blame I, it on Obamacare. Right? I just, I just, even like nine months into this administration, I'm still like weirded out by the press releases because you were so 
used to like the messaging under the Obama administration. Oh, it's all perfect. And, right. And like the last year, last year, they were really emphasizing the availability of the subsidies and how that was like muting the cost increases for most people. And there was like no mention of that in the releases earlier this week. It was all about like premiums are going up, which is true. But then like leaving out that kind of crucial fact that like 80 percent or I think it's even more this year, 86 percent. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I brought a press release that I just got from Avalier, the, the health research group that says that 98 percent of counties with exchanges operated by healthcare.gov will have a free bronze plan option for uh, low-income consumers age 50 earning 150 percent of poverty or less. That's $18,000 for an individual, $36,000, uh, $37,000 for a family of four. So there are, and I, and I think we started this at the beginning. I mean, I also saw, you know, I got some comments yesterday from people who went to sign up and were shocked that they could get a gold plan for less than a silver plan, which of course we've all been writing about for a month, but it doesn't mean anything, I think, until these people actually go and start to to sign up to to see, you know, yes, the, there are, there's huge sticker shock for people who don't who earn too much to get subsidies, but for people who do get subsidies because of the way this all played out with the the ending of the cost sharing reductions and how they sort of loaded the premiums onto the silver plans, and that's where the subsidies get calculated. People who are getting subsidies suddenly are getting way bigger subsidies mm-hmm. and discovering sort of to their delight that they can get these, you know, either free free bronze plants or more expensive gold plants at this huge discount. Um, so it's just it's a really, really odd year. Right. And yeah. it's I mean, there is a messaging campaign that could we could see, you know, free health care, free Obama. Well, free health insurance, not free health care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, somebody. Yeah. Those bronze plants come with big deductibles. Yeah. And, and, and but if you're low income, you get some extra help with that, too. So, um, you know, there there's uh, there's a messaging war that we haven't seen yet, but we somebody may figure it out. I mean, you know, remember the Obama administration's, you know, overstated the you know, perfection of the law. And now we're having the, I mean, yeah, it really, I agree with Paige, you know, you get these emails, no matter what question you ask, you get a response about how terrible it is. And, you know, there's still just, 20 million a, people, or maybe it's a little I less I just now. wonder sometimes how long they think they can keep blaming it on Democrats, because you saw the RNC come out with an ad earlier this week that was right. blaming Obamacare Obama. and Democrats. And you think like, I mean, I guess maybe your average voter like doesn't understand sort of the dynamics and the situation, but... Like, do they think they can keep doing that forever? Isn't there some kind of point at which that message no longer flies? I don't know. Certainly not with President Trump. I think the messaging war is absolutely critical right now because they're looking at midterm elections. And Republicans are very worried that people who are are going to hold them accountable for not repealing the law and for the higher premiums. So I don't think this messaging war is going to end. I think it's only going to intensify as we near the elections. Although we will have a little reprieve while we talk about taxes. Well, yes. yes. <laughs> Unless they add individual mandate repeal to it. When, so far, they did not. Right. Pay. That'll be more in the Senate we're, side. We're going to get to that in a minute. I just Before we finish up on the on open enrollment, I think I just wanted to, to kind of mention that, that, you know, when you see stories about you know, long lines or people coming in and lots of interest at the beginning. I think what makes insurers un- uncomfortable is that the people who come in at the beginning are the people who know they're going to need insurance. Those are the expensive people who use a lot of health care. So we've seen this, you know, for the last several years, at least the last several years it's actually worked on opening day, um, that you get a big surge at the beginning of the people 
for whom health insurance is really important. The critical time is at the end when right. you get the healthy people, either whose you know parents bug their their twenty and thirty somethings. You know, you really should have health insurance, or they just pay for it. Yeah, we yeah, or the parents just pay for it. Yeah, there is that. Um, but but get you, you do have to get them to sign up, or the people who just are like going back and forth. Do I really need health insurance? Do I really want to pay this? It's really expensive. They don't. Many of them don't even know that they could be eligible for help. And I think the concern is that without the extra help and the advertising and the you know the the talking up of the law, and also the fact that open enrollment ends. A month early or a month and a half early for most people, I think the insurers are really sweating out what's going to happen, you know, how they're going to get those healthy people that they need to keep the the, um, pool stable. You will see some marketing aimed at that because it is not in the interests of the healthcare sector to have only sick people covered. Uh, They're not going to be able to make up insurers and health plans and and health institutes are not going to be able to make up all the money that or the energy that the government could have put in if they hadn't cut it. But there are places in the country, like um, we had a report in New Haven yesterday. Dan Diamond was up in New Haven and the Yale Hospital, what's the name of the hospital center of the Yale. But the Yale system is actually giving retail space to a health plan to do marketing. They're giving them like a place to sort of set up a store because, and they never did that in the other years. So I think you'll see a lot of, um, you know, I mean, I don't think you'll see it in rural Texas, but I think there'll be parts of the country where you will see some um, people stepping into them, brokers, insurers, you know, it's, they want the healthy people. They don't want to just have the whole people. So do I think they can get it up to the level of what it would have been in with the, without the budget cuts at HHS? No. Is it more than we, you know, I think there are people thinking creatively about how to fill in some of the gaps. Well, and don't forget all the confusion around repeal, I think has left a number of people thinking that the law doesn't even exist. Like, there is such confusion out there. The navigators that I've spoken to, their main goal is just to let people know the basics. You can still enroll. This is still there. So there's a huge gap, I think, between what the general public knows and 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 people who are in the industry who follow this closely. Yeah, and actually, let, let's talk about taxes for a minute. I we are, we are taping this as the Republican tax bill is dropping, but I think we have some hints about what's in, what's in and not in the bill because there's, there are health uh, aspects to this tax bill, right? I mean, Paige, you mentioned, I mean, the biggest question is whether they were going to include the, the repeal of the individual mandate, because that is technically a tax provision. Right. Um, we're hearing that they're not, but obviously this is not the, this is the beginning of this debate, not the end. Right. I, we know that it was in, it was being discussed, and I think Senator Tom Cotton in particular was one who was kind of really pushing for that on the and Senate So side. was the president. Right. Exactly. Right. He was tweeting about it yesterday as well. So, but, but you know, I think there's a real, um, real disagreement right now because, of course, Chairman Brady of uh, Ways and Means said earlier this week that absolutely not. They weren't going to risk endangering tax reform by adding this on. So I think he doesn't want to see that happen. Uh, but, of course, it's all calculation about how you kind of pacify the conservatives who are still very hungry for repeal. Well, Brady wants to see it repealed. Yeah. He doesn't want it tacked onto the House bill if it's going to make tax reform fail in the Senate. If there was the votes in the Senate for it, Brady said he would more, you know, he would that's immediately right. put it right. in the House that's bill. The right. path. But, that's but the path it's, there's that's no right, right now. Yeah. There's not at this I, minute. There's not 50 votes in the House. Excuse in me, the in the Senate. Senate that we see or know well, about. Well, Senate, Senator uh, Cotton has been whipping people in uh, on the Senate side, and I talked with him yesterday, and he's feeling pretty confident. So it'll be interesting to see what actually happens. They're thinking that they just need to keep this alive and keep it on the table. Um, they really feel like this is something that. Once they pitch it, people can understand as it's a, it's a small slice. It's not skinny repeal. Now, Grant, and you've got Mark Meadows, who's very much in support of this. He's the, so, the head of the House Freedom yeah, Caucus. Yeah, so I, I, 
I don't know what's going to happen. I think it's really worth watching. Um, I I think that there is a real sense um, among Republicans that President Donald Trump is going to try and take some kind of action on the individual mandate, um, whether it be, you know, opening up more hardship exemptions that would basically gut it. So I think there's a feeling let's get this done um, in Congress so that we can get the savings and get and get that. Four hundred billion. That, well, that right. from, CBO. From their perspective, this is like the least popular part of the bill. Right. It does right. it get those savings for them. Um, but I wonder, would the CBO include a score? Of, because of course, if you repeal the mandate, that Since. means fewer people have coverage. But right. if you're scoring a tax bill, I don't know if yeah, they they would, uh, be. They would because it would it's the, the mandate's a tax. I mean, it is a pay right. for. Yes, and that's right. I think that's the but that's also, part yeah, of the I'm, dynamic. I'm, and right? I think they look at what happens to the economy. I mean, we're just we should we should mention this. What the CBO has said about getting rid of the mandate is that it actually saves money for the federal government, partly because people are paying the fine, although that's the smallest part. The biggest part is that I think there, they said there would be 15 million fewer people with insurance. Right. And therefore, the people who that we're just talking about can get these subsidies wouldn't get them. So that's where the and savings Medicaid. is. And yeah. Medicaid. Yeah. Right. So those are there's three different places that it would, you know, it would, on paper, it does save the government money, which they could use to pay for some more of their tax cuts. Which is why I think we can't rule this out right. back in the Senate, right. because it helps them pay for these tax cuts, which is a issue for some of the but Senators. it would also mean many, many, many more people wouldn't have health insurance, and you know what the, the same re- political dynamic. What the it's, Republicans? It's the same well, the right. Republicans will argue if they're if you're just talking about the mandate, the Republicans will, will argue that well, these are people that don't want health insurance, except that it's more. According to the CBO, it's a lot more than people who just don't right. want. But health even insurance. moderates like uh, Senator Collins um, have been saying that they don't like the mandate either. They're not sure this is the right vehicle to deal with it, which I think that becomes a real issue. Is could it bog down? Uh, the tax package. But I do think that there is a, a growing momentum here that is really worth keeping an eye on. But if they repealed it, what's interesting is they wouldn't be repl- I mean, in both the House and Senate bills, there were like replacements of sorts for the individual mandate. Which everybody um, hated, mm-hmm. but you're right. They're, right. They're, but you, you wouldn't be including those in tax reform. Right. Yeah. Which would which could make it. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I'm not sure if they just tax reform is a heavy lift. Yes. And really, it's, 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 you know, like we say about health care, it's big and complicated and hard to do. So I'm not sure they want to bite this off. And they're trying to do it with just Republican votes, just like health care. Right. I mean, it's, it's, you know, if we were tax reporters, we would be talking about, you know, how complicated and insurmountable this is. And and it's not insurmountable, but, you know, they're not going to be able to do everything they're setting out to do. And we don't know what it's going to look like or if it happens. And it's probably going to be a lot smaller than they set out. And um, I'm not sure they want to add. They may need to be simplifying rather than complicating and putting health care complicates. I remember talking to a Ryan staffer uh, in January this year, and um, we were talking about health reform versus tax reform. And he was kind of brushing aside health reform as, oh, that's the easy part, you know, (laughs) and I'm like the health (laughs) reporter saying, I don't know how you guys do this. Um, And he was like, it's really tax reform is where it gets hard. Well, that's what they're that's what they're finding out now after they failed to do health reform. Stephanie, you were mentioning that it's not just the individual mandate that could be, you know, health provisions in the tax bill. They're also looking at the the medical expense deduction. Right, that is dropped. Yeah. Yes. So that. Yes. I mean, and that's, that's all. That's all I know because it really just came out as we were coming in. Right. So and there's some, that I think is, there's some long-term care provisions. Yeah. But not but that I'm, many people have long-term but, care right, insurance. Right. Well, and not that right. many people. I mean, you know, in the Affordable Care Act, they raise the 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 threshold so you can't deduct your medical expenses unless they're over ten percent. And it was seven your, before. I mean, right. Most yeah, people. It, it was not been, something that right. everybody was you taking. Have to, you pretty 
much have to be have to be sick to be able to to take this. But for the people who take it, it's a lot of money. I mean, and I think that's going to play into the you know the whole argument about property tax deductions and state and local income taxes. That you know the things that that give people enough deductions to be able to itemize. This is one right. of them. Right. Um, yeah. So I I would think that that might also play into the. I would think so too. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's been closely watched. Um, all right. Well, that <laughs> obviously way more to come on on tax. Uh, Tax reform, tax cuts, whatever it is you want to call them. The Cut, Cut, Cut Act. Meanwhile, (laughs) I don't think that's the name yet. (laughs) We're still deciding. As someone pointed out, they they could still call it that even if that's not its name. Um, But the House is actually looking at passing its CHIP bill and its community. This would reauthorize the Children's Health Insurance Program, which expired October 1st, as we keep pointing out, and the the community health center programs, um, except that you know, this is a. It's, it's, these things have great bipartisan support, but this particular bill doesn't. So, so what the heck went wrong? Well, it's been weird. They've been taught. They've been. They were trying to negotiate for weeks and weeks, thinking that they would come to an agreement, which traditionally they have done in the past. And um, Republicans or Democrats really hated the pay for initially out of the ENC bill, and then um, Republicans kind of revised that. But the fact is, the bill would still pull money out of the Affordable Care Act's Prevention Fund, um, which which Democrats Ten and have a half long billion dollars, right? And and Democrats have long been really frustrated at how that fund has already been dipped into a lot of other things, um, and so you know the pay fors are really holding it up still. Yeah, and there's also there's a Medicare means testing pay for in his in this too, which, which has been I think um, I don't think people totally understand it. There already is a Medicare means testing. Um, this would not subject more people to it, but the people who are the upper income people who are paying more for their Medicare would pay even more for their Medicare. That and their Medicare and and there are a lot of Democrats are sort of split on this, but they don't like it. They don't. It, it's not so much that. They're worried about sort of the the crawl or the creepingness of you know more and more people having to pay more and more. And this this particular case, it did not sweep more people. It didn't change the income threshold. It changed the amount. But no, the Democrats don't really like it. Although some of them have endorsed it in the past, I think it's the prevention fund that's really the big problem. The Dem- the Republicans did add something that Democrats like this week. So there was even though they didn't resolve it in the House, they did put in the dish payments. These are they delayed these cuts and payments that help safety net hospitals, hospitals that treat poor people. They did do something for them. Democrats like that. There's still a lot. Um, in there that the on the pay for side that the Democrats don't like it, it you know we all expect it to go through the House. Remember that it has to be bipartisan in the Senate. So what happens in the House is, I mean, it is more partisan than we expected, but it's also not totally surprising given the makeup of the House and the dynamic in the House. You can't do it in the Senate without it being bipartisan. So this is still part of the sort of because you know, it will need sixty votes. It needs sixty uh, votes, unlike the tax bill. <laughs> you know, this is still part of you know. Congress kabuki. Um, it, it is messier than we thought. I mean, it probably is going to go into the end of. Well, it's not messier than we thought. It's taking longer. I mean, I thought it would be messy. I thought there would be a big. Pay it's for always fights. messy. Yeah. Right. I thought it would get resolved a little bit more quickly. There is a chance they will resolve it this month, as if they do hurricane aid this month, another another supplemental spending bill on on hurricanes. They could possibly fold chip and community health centers into that. It's not the most likely scenario. The most likely scenario is that it gets folded into this. You know absolutely ginormous end of the year, put everything in it, Bill, um, that, you know, maybe December 8th, if we're really lucky, probably later. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so the two scenarios are to mush it into this huge bill that's going to be very, 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 very big, um, maybe into hurricanes. I would, at this point, I don't 
think it'll be in hurricanes, but they're going to get pressure from the states to do it. So maybe hurricanes. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still, you know, remember we talked, we were all so excited when the Senate came up with a, you know, a bipartisan bill, but we should point out that didn't have any way to pay for it. Right, so they, they, got, they, yeah, they avoided, right they avoided the, the right. hard part of but this. But they agreed, I mean, they have agreed on their end point. I mean, the House and the Senate, Democrats and Republicans have agreed to fund CHIP, deal with, you know, for five the, years. For five years. Although so community that is health the, centers just two years. Right? Right. Two years, right. And, the House and they're not out of money yet because I actually checked into that yesterday. Um, well, they the, got a temporary. They're okay when they, January, yeah, right? they, they did. They're they gave okay them a couple a while, of months. Right. So the the um, I mean, they're not OK because they still have to plan and they have to hire people. It's They're not OK is too strong a word, but they're not in, you know, they're not shutting their doors or turning away patients. Yeah. The the. So the end point is still that five years, and, and you know, then if they manage to get that done by December, we don't have to talk about this for five years. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. All right. Well, meanwhile, there's a couple of leftover news events from last week. One was this enormous regulation for the Affordable Care Act plans for 2019 that HHS dropped on Friday, and there's some doubts about what it would do to the essential benefits. Paige, you wrote about this. Yeah. Well, it didn't get a lot of attention when it dropped, probably because it was late it was Friday. Friday. And there's there's sort of another news um, this week. Um, <laughs> there but- always is. Yes. Um, But yeah, there were a lot of elements to this, but the biggest changes were potentially to these essential health benefits. Um, So to kind of um, put it in a hopefully simple fashion is uh, the the way it currently works is that states have to select from among four different benchmark plans, which basically set the model for what insurers have to cover in these 10 essential health benefit yeah, it's, categories. Yeah, it's important, to, I think, to, to say that, you know, for all the talk about, you know, this is a very top-down federal plan, the, the Obama administration, when it first created this, basically gave states the options for how to create these essential right. health benefits. Because the they knew it cover. would be different in every state. Right. You know? And at the time, it was actually seen as giving a lot more leniency on this because states could really choose what they felt was best. And so, but, but so the way it works, though, they have to choose one single plan and whatever the benefits are within each category in that plan, that's what insurers have to, individual market insurers have to cover. Um, the way that this rule, what this rule would open the door to is that states could basically um, kind of staple together different categories. I like that, the way of characterizing it, um, different benefit levels from different plans. So from different states, from, different even states. from different states. Mm-hmm. Right. So they could choose like the maternity benefit uh, coverage from one plan and they could choose the habilitative and rehabilitative services. So so basically that that the thought is that if states went that route, it would open the door to um, very much lightening or lessening what insurers would have to cover. And not only that, but um, insurers could actually transfer um, benefits from one category into another category. And so if they, as long as the overall actuarial value of the plan is still constant, insurers could do, do a lot more shuffling inside the plan in terms of the benefits that they offer. And so the thought is that insurers would have a lot more leeway potentially to make a plan less attractive, perhaps to somebody who has a long-term chronic condition like diabetes or arthritis, someone who you know needs benefits in one particular category but might not be able to find them anymore. Or somebody who's likely to get pregnant or right if they don't want right they could try to make a plan less attractive to women of childbearing age right plus they also would be allowed to adjust states to adjust the medical loss ratio so insurers could also use more of what they get for profit so you better explain what the medical loss ratio is well it's just basically this amount that insurers have to have to spend on actual provision of care 
versus what they can keep for profits or administrative costs. And so this would allow states to enable insurers to spend more on the profits and administrative costs than they currently can. And the individuals I've talked with said this, coupled with the essential benefit um, changes, are really a big kind of nod to the insurer and the industry, although they were very confused as to where, why the medical loss ratio, where that even came from is it's hard for insurers to even make what it is right now. But I do think what Paige mentioned about the essential health benefits is really big. I think that this could lead to some significant and substantial changes, but it's kind of below the radar because there's just so much other news right now. And this is 2019 we're talking about. And it's well, hard it's, to understand. Yeah. I mean, if, if people yeah. are having trouble figuring out whether Obamacare was repealed or not, yes, um, <laughs> the idea that there's plans. going to be a proposed rule of 2019, 2019, 2019 right. what's the rule called again essential what is it the count- it was 365 pages though <laughs> yes i actually read like most of it yeah the, the, it's going it to not. allow it's... states to alter benchmarks of essential benefits yeah. i mean really yeah it's yeah. pretty it's pretty obscure but, but as, as we pointed out it's also it could be really, really important, important. Well, it's only a 30 day comment period too. i think a way of like characterizing this is sort of that debate between do you make the situation optimal for the healthy people who might want to buy leaner coverage or optimal for the people with pre-existing conditions because you know you could argue that it it could lead to lower premiums for the healthier people who don't necessarily need all of this coverage, but then it screws over the people with pre-existing conditions. And this, so. is, this has been the problem all along. I mean, so to this, always, right, yeah. yeah. I mean, and the, if the healthy person doesn't necessarily stay healthy and they don't know that and, you know, they that's the issue. That's why people are supposed to have insurance, but you also have to have insurance that people can afford. That's, so that's that's been the tension. Uh, and essential benefits is really sort of the, the crucible of that conflict. If you want a really rich benefit program that really protects people if they get sick or if they are sick, it costs a lot. Right. But you don't want people buying something that doesn't have benefits that will protect them if they get sick. And that's this conundrum that's sort of the essential nature of, of what we're fighting about. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's also the idea of insurance right. that, you know, you mm-hmm. pay in when you're healthy so that when you get sick, you can you can then collect if everybody if only there's only sick people there, then there's there's no one to, to balance the pool. Um, all right. Well, we'll I think stay tuned. We'll talk about this more, too. But also, since the last time we gathered, the president announced his public health emergency for the opioid crisis. And yesterday, his opioid commission released its final report. So, Joanne, what do we know that we didn't know last week? The president's, you know, he, he didn't put any money in it. And he did. It does. The emergency declaration for public health does allow some flexibility that even people who aren't crazy about the fact that there was no money, you know, do think that some things could happen more quickly, gives HHS and states a little more flexibility to do some things that need to be done more quickly than they might have otherwise. But what he basically said is he was going to, you know, wait for his commission. And his commission reported yesterday and they didn't put a dollar figure on it either. Um, so there's this circuitous kicking of but the But they said we should can- have a big ad campaign. Yeah. Well, Trump said, you know, for those of us who are old enough to remember Nancy Reagan and just say no, I mean, I thought, you know, I haven't read all 150 pages or whatever, but I have I I have read part of the report and I've read the recommendations. And um, there are things that the public health community does like and is responding very favorably toward the Christie report. And there's a really key sentence there that um, I actually wrote down for an event I was at this morning, but I didn't bring my little card in here. So I'm going to quote it, but I may not have it totally accurately. But it's a sentence that I don't think would have been written in a report like this a couple of years ago, which is addiction is a chronic 
relapsing disease of the brain that affects many aspects of a person's life. That's a pretty close to the direct quote. It's not exact. A chronic relapsing disease of the brain. Well, we don't treat any other chronic relapsing diseases with an ad campaign. The Christie Commission has 50-something recommendations um, on prescription drug monitoring technology, how they have to be made. um, Doctors have to be Use them, but they also have to be easier for doctors to use. Taking the prescription guidelines we've got, improving them, doing more research, finding other ways to treat pain. Pain is real, right? I mean, whether you prescribe opioids or not, the person has pain. If we want to move away from opioid abuse and we want to use move away from prescribing opioid at the drop of a hat or, you know, like, you know, those of you around, you can't, we're on a podcast, you cannot see that I have a sprained ankle and a great big boot. You know, a few years ago, they probably would have given me opioids and this time. They said, go home and put on ice. Um, and, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, I should have asked for opioids as a reporter, just what <laughs> just would they see. have said? How would they have given me? How many would they have given? A few years ago, they would have given me 30 days worth or at least two weeks worth. I mean, I didn't ask for them because I was thinking about That's my That's what foot. they call shoe leather reporting, right? Right. Well, I wasn't <laughs> able to wear my shoe by that point. Um, so, I mean, I think that the Christie report does tr- put this as a chronic disease that we need to pay attention to. And it, it comes up with a lot of um, prescribing issues. There are law enforcement issues. I mean, fentanyl and heroin are illegal drugs. I mean, they're, but the connection. You know, if there's people, lay people or people who aren't plugged into this or, you know, they think, well, it's not an opioid crisis anymore. It's a heroin crisis. There is a connection because if you are dependent on opioids and your doctor says, no, you can't have anymore, some of those people end up, you know, the, the, the dependency doesn't go away. Your pain doesn't go away. Your addiction, abuse, whatever words we use for them don't go away because somebody won't write you a prescription anymore. Some of those people are ending up using illegal drugs. And this fentanyl, you don't know what you're taking when you get a street drug, right? You don't know if you're buying illegal opioid pills. You don't know what's in them. You don't know if your heroin is heroin or fentanyl. They don't come with, you know, labels. People are dying and they're dying, you know, fentanyl's scary, scary. It's like 20 um, times more powerful than heroin. Right. It's, it's really crazy. scary. And, you know, I just spent earlier this morning, I was you know, speaking to an emergency room physician and, you know, she's dealing with these young people who she cannot revive. And then she has to go tell their parents. And she, it's devastating. So I think there's things in the Christie Commission, you know, where we have to see how much you know money Congress puts in, whether they put new money in, whether they just move around. Is it a roadmap that on the first read, the public health community is saying there's some good stuff in here and and there's law enforcement I'm not saying it's not a you know heroin and fentanyl is a law enforcement problem but Even- there's a medical component to that law enforcement. The, the user has a medical problem, even if there clearly is a criminal justice component here. Even without money, and obviously the public health community, you know, needs wants more, money. Yeah, <laughs> wants money, needs more resources. I mean, I think it's not just, you know, healthcare. But is it fair to say that, that you know, sort of since the, the Trump administration took effect, we, there has been something of a change in the attitude towards this? There's I mean, been a lot more talk about law enforcement, criminality, uh, criminal justice, get tough, uh, build the wall, keep the drugs out. That's not the problem. I mean, that is part of the problem. Um, but I think that's why the Christie Commission in some ways, um, I mean, Chris Christie is a Republican governor who's been talking about addiction as disease and that you treat people, you don't jail them for quite a few years now. He's one of the Republican voices that has been influential on this. And the state of New Jersey has some programs and he's been a, a fan of drug courts, which is also part of the recommendations instead of, you know, special drug courts, you put people in treatment. Um you know, they're they're basically they're, sentence them to treatment. Yeah, but I mean, but you know, right now, like if this this emergency room doctor I was talking to this morning, you know, she she sees somebody who does have a drug problem come into her who survives, uh, who doesn't die, and but they they need treatment, and she you have to be able to get them into treatment, and physicians 
don't they're, sometimes they'll spot a patient with a red flag. Oh, I, and they just say, I don't, you know, I don't want you to be my patient. I'm not going to give you drugs. But they're not saying, oh, you're still my patient. I need to get you into treatment or I need to treat you. We're, we're, there's huge gaps. And the, the death toll is just astonishing. Yeah, it is terrifying. Well, yeah. uh, something else that I know we will talk about some more. Not today. Um, let us wrap things up today with a segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently that they think everyone else should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Who wants to start, Paige? Yeah. Well, my st- my uh, Extra Credit is called The Facts of Life, and it's by our podcast colleague, uh, Sarah Cliff, who's been doing some really great reporting on consumer health and sort of the consumer experience in getting health care. And she went to a clinic in Arlington and and asked them about their electronic medical records and sort of how they get records around. And they do have records internally, but the problem is none of the systems communicate with each other. And so they end up having to actually fax records to yes, other we should offices. Put it, it's called the Facts of Life FAX. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And so um, so it was really interesting. She says that hospitals... So, so electronic health records have grown exponentially in the last few years because of extra funding that the government provided. Uh, in, in 2008, only 9% of hospitals used these electronic records. Now 83% do, but there's this huge ongoing problem of the systems actually not communicating with each other. And so we're still kind of stuck in the dark ages of having to use faxes. And uh, I really resonated with this story because I see it in my own in my own experience. I mean, I have I can't tell you the number of times I've spent on the phone calling my primary care to my endocrinologist, trying to get records transmitted. Um, and I so an interesting point of her story was that um, I think the government assumed that uh, that that hospitals would have incentive to cause these records to 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 um, transmit to communicate with each other, but actually the competitive edge where they don't want patients to go to another provider has actually prevented them from integrating all of those things together, and that's something that I think the government didn't necessarily um, anticipate. understand anticipate <laughs> right, and so um, so anyway, it's really really interesting story. I recommend it. It is a really good story, Stephanie. Uh, my story was in Slate, um, and uh, unfortunately, my cell phone had the I had the story there, but I had to leave my cell phone out of this room. So hopefully, Julie has the title of it handy. But it was a great story, actually, very engagingly written about individuals who pass away and the proliferation of medical devices that are inside of them, like pacemakers. And there's a component in that medical device that, when they um, are cremated, explodes. Um, so it was this fascinating, I don't know where the reporter came up with this idea, but it's very engaging, gets you to read to the end. And what's really surprising is how often this occurs. Like, I thought this would have been sort of like a one-off story, but it was... No, it's apparently a huge problem in crematoria. Yes, and there are a number of devices that this can happen with. So um, it's just a really engaging read, and we will make sure to post Uh, the title. I don't have have the title with me either, but yes, we will post it on the the KHN site. Absolutely worth reading. Joanne. As regular listeners know, I I usually dig up some sort of thing that other people haven't noticed from a magazine or something. But this week, I'm using a journal article, which was Health Affairs had a bunch of articles on uh, Choosing Wisely, which is a five or six-year-old campaign to try to get physicians to not use low-value, you know, stuff that doesn't help their patients, low-value care. And um, one post in particular was about how physicians, you know, they're just not, it's just not getting through. Physicians don't know about it. Those who do know about it are not necessarily following the recommendations. And these are not super tough things. These are these are sort of nibbling at the a lot of it is nibbling at the edges of, of, 
of uh, it's low basically, value it's, care. Yeah, trying to get it overuse right. or and, overuse and, of stuff that's not. And helpful. the one the one thing that I that some geriatricians have told me is that they think it has been useful is that there are fewer um, feeding tubes in uh, people with advanced dementia in nursing homes, and uh, people think that's partly because of choosing wisely. But basically, this was just a, a piece in health affairs that just said, you know, this should have been way easier than it is, and it's not working very well. And you know how to get doctors to a pay attention and b act on it. Uh, you know, they're afraid to say no to their patients. The patient is going to go somewhere else. And, you know, we're doing so much, you know, we're just doing so much stuff that doesn't work or we could do better, cheaper. Yeah. Behavior change is hard. Um, well, my story is actually from last week, but I didn't want to let it go by. It's by two of my Kaiser Health News colleagues, Jonelle Alicia and Melissa Bailey. It's an investigation into substandard care by hospice providers just before death, basically hospice providers that don't show up when people are actually dying. It's wrenching and horrible, and everybody should read it. Um, it's really an amazing piece. So that is it for today. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us too. If you have comments, you can email us at whatthehealth at kff.org. That's all one word. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. At Steph Armour One. PW underscore Cunningham. <laughs> well, uh, and and I podcast just to make you say that every week. <laughs> and I promise we will get all the links up to all of our extra credit stories. Uh, and we'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.